I was on my way one direction and I see this light shining off a comic in a, in a comic book store. And I said, I don't know what the fuck I think I'm doing with my life, but I know it's not going to be anything else but trying to do this from now on. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relieve printmaking, their Woodzilla presses. Beautifully handmade in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. They're available across five sizes. Each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist and still guaranteeing that beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Peter Santamaria, who you might know from his interweb handle, Attack Peter. He shares with us his story of growing up in Miami and finding refuge in pop culture while his folks were going through a pretty rough divorce, and the 13-year transition it took to being an art teacher with a little cart to a full-time salaried artist. Also, you'll hear Peter mention his Kickstarter in today's episode, so check out the link in the show notes for that. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to delight your 11-year-old self with Attack Peter. Hi, Peter. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. How are you? I'm Thanks for having good. me. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you. I feel like you're another printy kind of person out there making content and doing things that maybe don't feel or fit exactly into the purview of what people think about what print people do. You're doing all kinds of YouTube shows and I'm doing a podcast and we're out there trying to make the the good work to spread the good word together. Absolutely. I, I love the medium and I have so much respect for so many artists that I know about in the medium. And I feel like part of my job here is to take this traditional medium in an untraditional way and see if I can get more people to try it. Cause I just think it's so fun. Absolutely. So can you introduce yourself and let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? My full name is Peter Santa Maria. I'm an artist. People usually know my work by the name Attack Peter. It's a brand that I started to market all this stuff that I do. And it was really just a goofy username on social media that I changed 500 times. But by the time I got noticed by the company I work for, I had Attack Peter was the name. So we kept it. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I, I work primarily in linoleum block prints. And the aesthetic that I'm known for is my prints. And because it's novel in the world of pop culture, where I'm primarily known working with clients like Marvel and Disney and uh, I guess different bands and, and sci-fi and, and comics and all that stuff, the medium is novel in those realms. And so I've tried to push the aesthetic of the linoleum block prints in other media. So now we're designing toys, merch of all kinds, experimenting with 2D animation and stuff, but trying to always retain the the printmaking aesthetic, which allows me to introduce people to it because they don't know what it is when they don't aren't familiar with the with the style. Wonderful. And then so I feel like there is so much in what you just said, and it's so fascinating about you work for a company and you've done these work with these big names and that idea of bringing the aesthetic to sort of the outside world. The way we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the way that printmaking can be kind of insular and that there's not a lot of education outside of people who know printmaking. But before we get into all of that, would you let me know? 
where did you grow up and what role yeah. did art play in that part of your life and making? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was born in Virginia, but I grew up all my, almost my entire life in Miami, Florida since I was two years old. So I'm still here now in Miami and I kind of like it because it's got a little, it's just, just enough of the cool culture that I enjoy without uh, the need to be mixed in with a ton of people all the time. I'm pretty remote. I'm in a suburb and uh, I just always like making stuff, but I don't think I ever thought too deeply about technique growing up. And that's something that still plays a big role in my life now. I'm never going to be the best technician. I, that's not, I mean, I, I try to get better all the time, but that's not really a goal of mine. I'm just an, interested in ideas and getting them out of my head. And uh, that's what I've all, always did my whole life. I was into cartooning and comics when I was a kid and toys. And I used to love my action figures in a way that was like less about mashing them together pretending they're fighting and more about appreciating the the form and design of each one. I, I remember that even as a small kid. And uh, for me, it was, I just wanted to learn how to draw to be able to get these ideas out of my head. And so I always drew, I always made mini comics and things like that. And I really didn't have much of an art education experience growing up. I think I had art class maybe twice between kindergarten and eighth grade, like an, an actual year long art class, right? And maybe it was peppered in between, but it was a very small school and it wasn't a big focus there. And so in high school, I got to take art twice, which was great. My my teacher at the time, David Eisenberg, a great professor, studied at the Chicago Art Institute and great painter in his own right. And he introduced me to the medium, but I definitely wasn't ready yet because I was so focused on music. I wanted to be in a rock band. I wanted to perform. I wanted to be in front of people. And which is funny because I think that kind of carries through what I'm doing now. There's a performative aspect to what I do. And I kind of like let art go because I could, it didn't, it wasn't happening fast enough for me. Mm. And I was able to pick up a guitar and just go, Jing! and I feel like, <laughs> okay, I got that. And, but I was always interested in the aesthetic, designing band logos and, and merch ideas and things like this. And, and so eventually the music thing, it actually, we got signed when I was 19 years old to a record label and it fell apart because one of the band members heard the calling of God, according to him, that he couldn't play music anymore, all this. And so whatever, oh it gosh. made me realize, yeah, it was, it was devastating because we were doing really well and uh, was signed to the same record label as uh, Nickelback and Slipknot and all these big bands. And, uh, but it made me realize at the time, and I guess this is why it's relevant, that I needed to not rely on other people to get my ideas out, to be able to get my ideas out. And the band felt like four other great people who I love, but also eccentric to some degree. And in the same way, I don't usually collaborate with tons of artists because I just want to get my idea out. I felt like I had to just be independent and build my own path. And so I went back, just shifted total 180, and I went back into learning how to draw again, learning how to paint. And I was just wanted to be a kind of a comic book artist, a cartoonist and stylization was my, my only interest. And I, I had discovered the comics, the Hellboy comics. Mm -hmm. And I was generally interested in comics, but I discovered Hellboy comics written and created and drawn by an artist named Mike Mignola. And his art was so mind-blowing to me. I couldn't understand it. It actually, I think, is a great artists for printmakers to look at because there's tons of chiaroscuro, tons of dark, heavy blacks, textural mark making and all that kind of stuff. Not what you would expect in a comic book for sure. And I saw the work and it, it created this like Saul Paul moment for me where I was on my way one direction and I see this light shining off a comic in a, in a comic book store. And I said, I don't know what the fuck I think I'm doing with my life, but I know it's not going to be anything else, but trying to do this from now mm. on. And I went hardcore into trying to draw like that guy and and just trying to chase his stylization, not knowing at the time how important my fundamentals would be to be able to reach that point in my own way. And so I was just a stubborn but obsessed artist, art student, I should say, and learning everything I could, including finally in college, I took I didn't take a printmaking course, but I used to skip into a printmaking course. <laughs> Because the course was one of the like the ones that everybody talked about. I could just never get into it. And I would hang out there and I got to see a lot. I got to see all manner of relief and monotypes and screen printing and all this. 
And all of it seemed way too technical for my short attention span, but I did like the process shifting in linoleum block printmaking and the fact that it was kind of like, it could be, I know a lot of people will probably scoff at this, but it could be something that's like quick and rugged and dirty and you can just pack it up and take it somewhere. And so I, I love trying it, but I didn't really understand it too much. And I definitely didn't have the money for the materials at the time, but I pursued art. Uh, shortly after that, in fact, I, I was actually in business school because I thought, well, I'm not going to ever be good enough to make artwork professionally at the time I felt this way. And so once what I should do then is study something achievable like business degree or something like that so that at least I can go work for a company that produces toys or produces art objects that I really like and I can kind of maybe be a creative director or something like that. And I kind of like talked myself out of my own dream in two seconds out of fear and insecurity. And what ended up happening was another, I guess, Saul Paul moment, but in a more dramatic sense, a, a friend of ours that we grew up with since we're teenagers was driving and hit by a drunk driver. Mm. And this guy was the best looking guy you could ever meet. All the chicks were obsessed with him. Smartest guy, funny, great family. And it did. he, he wasn't even killed by the accident, but he was a vegetable. He's quadriplegic to this day. Mm -hmm. And it freaked me out so bad because it made me feel like, look, no, even if you're doing everything right and minding your own business, all of this can get taken away from you at any point. And so without really understanding like the concept of memento mori or anything like that, I had this internal feeling like I am not going to live a life for anybody else ever again. And mm -hmm. I had this feeling like I'm going to go chase what I want to do, I'm going to go study art. No idea what I'm going to do with it. I know a lot of art degrees end up being useless in certain careers that you choose anyway, but at least I'll be next to it, close to it. And I know nothing. So at least I can go learn something. And, uh, and I, and I, and I got into sculpture and painting and I learned, I tried to be objectively the best of anybody in my immediate periphery at every medium I was attempting. And I'm super competitive, <laughs> like ultra competitive. So I would pick an, a target and I go, that person's the best. That's where I got to at least get to that level before the semester ends, which is silly, but that's how I think. And uh, over time, little by little, I got into it more. And then I had to get a job because I was graduating with my BFA and I needed to make money. And I started teaching because it was the only thing that I could do with my degree at the time. And this is right in the, right before the economic collapse in 2007. And I got a job teaching and I didn't even know how to teach art because I never really had art class at, mm -hmm. at the ages I was teaching. So I didn't even know what it looked like. It was chaos. <laughs> but while teaching, I realized that one of the projects I did with my students, and this is the long-winded answer to some of this, they loved more than anything linoleum block printmaking, especially the kids who were scared of trying to learn how to draw. Mm, mm -hmm. Linoleum block printmaking is not cheap, so you can only kind of do it once a semester usually with the materials that we had, uh, if that. And But when we did it, you should see every uh, every kid. They loved it. And I some eventually I was able to use it to trick kids into learning how to draw mm -hmm. because they were happy to experiment if they knew it how it was going to look in the end because it, it printmaking has a finished quality almost no matter what, unlike other mediums. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I loved doing the block prints because at the time my, my schedule as a teacher was you would teach a class. I was art on a cart. If that is so like, yeah, uh, for those who don't know as a te a beginning art teacher, you don't always get an art classroom. You get a little cart, like where they used to put the TV on and roll into your classroom, you all your supplies in that cart and you roll it around the school. And because of that, I never had time to work on my own stuff because I was doing mostly gouache paintings and watercolors and all that. And even though I figured out how to be semi nimble, a block of linoleum, a cutting tool, one of those old school speed balls with a, a two blade or a five blade. That's all I would ever use. Mm -hmm. I didn't have enough to have everything else. A Sharpie and a pencil, and I was good to go. So I was always able to just pick it up, carve, 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 got to go, pick it up, put it away, no mess, no fuss. And because of that, I ended up getting really into doing block prints. And it wasn't something I had pursued or or planned on, it just came that way. And uh, that all together gave me this feeling that there might be something here. And I think that's where I got into the idea of trying this a little more, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Like that's I everything. Said, Wrap up the podcast yeah, okay. right there. That's Interview it. over. <laughs> that's Peter's story. That's it. No, there's there's so much in there. Yeah. But one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about being interested in being in a band and yeah. and having that drive and having that drive to perform and how that seems like it could be very counter to art making. Art making oh. is so solitary. Oh, it's my God. you and and the process. And then yes. of course there are artist talks and there are gallery exhibitions kind of within like the usual framework of how the art world works that may be more performative, but that's the 0.001% of what actually is happening. Yeah. And it's usually pretty like sleepy. A lot of that stuff. I gotta be honest with you. Like yes. I, <laughs> funny enough, I found early on that I loved making art I loved being around other artists and other minds in the arts, whether they made it or not. Like there were certain gallery owners who I loved dearly and museum docents who I learned so much from. But the overall social aspect of these artists to me was god awful. I have to tell you, it was boring. It was it was very like up its own butt. And there always felt like this veneer of we can't admit that we have other interests outside this specific area that we're all collective into. In fact, it was a faux pas to admit you enjoyed any kind of pop culture arts mm. when I was in school mm -hmm. with the professor. So I respected the shit out of these professors. I mean, I just did. I, I would put them on pedestals and they were incredible technicians at, at Florida International University is where I learned a lot of the stuff and uh, in Miami. And but then I would like want to say, what's oh, cool, you guys? Like comics are not as lame as you think, for example. And I know you think everything is very one note in comics, but you should see what people are doing now. I, there's a lot of artists that I love. This guy named David Mack, who he does watercolors, uh, oil pastels, and and mark making. And and when he's telling the main story, he draws it realistically. But then he does the, the story from the perspective of the hero's child, and the whole thing's drawn in crayons. And it was like, it's different, you guys. It's cool. And it was all immediately like shut shut it down, shut them down, shut them mm. down, or. Guys, have you ever seen how much artistry goes into creating special effects on the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2? And they had no budget and it was super cool. You guys would love this. Nah, 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 nah. Let's talk about Joseph Boys. Everybody put <laughs> it on a chair, shove it in a fucking corner. And if you, you don't like it, go fuck yourself. And that was – can we curse on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay. Please. Okay. Preferable. And, and so I always felt like an outsider among outsiders. And that drove mm. me nuts. And I go, you, and I would always think to my, in my head, I'm like, you guys realize that part of why this field and industry, if you want to call it that, is so daunting to those who would begin, right? Or the reason there's no funding in the arts and people don't champion it is because it seems like no one's allowed in this club. Yeah. And although I was an outsider in my opinions, my, my skills at the time were undeniable, at least in that social circle. And so I got a chance to throw my weight around opinion wise, but I realized this is all for not because they'll be happy to like, when I graduate or move on, they'll be happy to broom me out and go back to like, everything is fiber art or whatever. Everything is an abstraction. And, and I love all of it. Honestly, I find yeah. aesthetics and, and joy and all of that. I don't exclude. I, if I don't like something, I don't like it. It's not because it belongs to a certain background of some kind. And so it, it became apparent to me immediately that, and I don't even remember what your question was. You'll forgive me because I'm sure I went on a tangent here. But it, it got to, it, I got to this point where I realized there's so much cool shit happening behind the doors of these art programs and the mark making and the and the hands on and the tactile it, at a time where everything was going digital. Everything was a, mm. like there was such a novelty even 15 years ago in doing things tangibly that. If only we figured out how to be more inclusive, right? That's why pop culture art eats the lunch of fine arts every day because pop culture is looking to sell stuff to people so they're immediately driven to be inclusive. Whereas the fine art world, it's almost like the more exclusive, the more valuable. And so therefore, uh, we end up shrinking the 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 pool over time more and more and more. And, uh, and I just didn't want to be a part of that. I wanted the joy of the making and the joy of sharing what we, was made because I'm sure you've been in those classrooms where when you're a student 
and like the sculpture kids are talking to the people who are doing painting and they're sharing ideas. And then you're dating someone who's taken ceramics or fiber arts and you get to go to that class. And you're like, oh shit, I love that. And that is such a, anathema to what artists are like in the professional world. They don't want to share technique. They don't want to share experiences. It's a famine mentality. And I said, good, you guys be like that. <laughs> I'll do the opposite and let's see what happens. And and thank God up to now it's worked out in my benefit. And it's not some genius enlightening position. It's just like we all do cool stuff. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a maker or you at least love a maker or you're right. So that's good. So sharing it is great. And I think now it's gotten a lot better with social media and mm -hmm. online forums and communities, et cetera. But there was a time where that was not the case. And uh, so I just try to bring that over to what I do because going into the pop culture world, for example, if you think printmaking is not that well-known, even in fine art circles or not that well understood, I should say in fine art circles, it is far less understood in the pop culture or commercial art world. So I often find myself having to explain it. Happy to do it. I'm thinking a lot about what you were saying there about this idea of this distinction, this artificial binary between fine art and pop art. Yeah. Because there are such incredibly talented artists who, as you mentioned, are doing things like figuring out how we're going to do the special effects on evil dead Two with no budget. The people right. who are designing an image like Godzilla, that's so iconic right. that it lasts decades and franchises and crosses cultures and is so widely recognized. I, I would know a silhouette of Godzilla anywhere, probably more than I'd know a silhouette of the girl with the pearl earring. Right. right. So it's so these people have the ability to to make visual culture that is lasting and sustainable and people very much connect with. And yeah. and so I was thinking when you were talking about particularly when you're talking about the 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 structure of it and how you are I'm sure selling your original prints to people who have never been in art galleries and who yeah. hang them on their walls and they love it and it fills their life. I, I don't think I ever told you this in, in our, in our lead up to this or in our chats, but I walked into a friend's apartment in Bangkok and I saw one of your prints on the wall. No shit. Yeah. That's and I knew I'd been following your work for a while and I was like, oh my gosh, you've gotten to attack Peter. And she's like, yeah, I love Godzilla. It makes me so happy. Yeah. And she was not someone who identified as an art collector, right? As, as someone who's like, I'm a patron of the arts. Yeah. But of course she is. She was doing amazing work in Burma with the civil war that was going on at the time and doing this really intense work. And she said, when I come home and I look at this Godzilla, it makes me happy. And I feel like at the end of the day, I think because of the experiences I had, I also had like a wonderful mom, a wonderful set of grandparents, a wonderful stepdad. And, but, but I, I grew up in a house that was like torn apart by a nasty divorce for mm. years. It would just linger back and forth and back and forth. And so I think a lot of my attraction to creating is to create the fun and the excitement and the, and the, curiosity that I would feel as a kid watching movies or playing with my toys or drawing or whatever it is. And that feeling is the one that I'm always chasing. Mm. I'm sure there's a psychology statement on that of some kind, but <laughs> it, it kind of is like this feeling like I, sometimes I feel like I missed out on some of the bliss of childhood and I always chasing, not that I had it that bad, but, and so it's all relative. And so the idea is then when I went to college and I, and I felt, cause I was aware of the fine arts world. My stepfather was an artist in Cuba and a lot of his friends were artists, but not to the, not with what I wanted to do. And so when I started to learn how these folks in the, in the art world kind of behaved with each other, I'm like, that's not what I want to do. And that's not yeah. what I want to feel. And, and I also would have an art opening for the department I was in or at the university. And I would think I'm going to bring my family to this. And because they don't, they're not in this world 24 seven. 
I notice some of the professors or some of the people in the art departments, whatever, would kind of like condescend to them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't overt. And my family wasn't stupid. They knew what was going on. But it was almost like they've decided that they are other. And I'm like, this is nuts. And and even if you don't, even if you're the most cynical person or elitist person, fine. You have to realize that that is terrible for longevity and terrible for your mm-hmm. ability to stay in this field. And I know no one can tell me different. So many people that I was going to school with, studying with, showing early days in galleries with, who are 10 times the artist that I was in terms of skill and like success and being collected early on. And they don't do it anymore at all because they couldn't keep up. And I felt that when I got out of, when I graduated art school, there was no like career advice that they really gave you. There was zero art business talk as a student. Mm -hmm. And at some point I realized, okay, let's get into a gallery. I got into a gallery in 2012. My first, so I I had some group shows. One of the group shows, one of my pieces was purchased by a big time art, uh, a big time art collector in Miami, the Lombardis, uh, David Lombardi. He's like the guy who started Wynwood and that whole area Mm -hmm. in Miami, art epicenter, whatever it is. Real estate guy, super nice. He bought a piece from me. I went to deliver. I told him I'll only sell this to you if you give me a solo show in one of your galleries or else you can't buy it. And uh, which was talking shit because I needed the money. And (laughs) I called his bluff. He said he agreed to do it. Gave me a solo show. It was amazing. It was slammed. It was, and it wasn't just because it was my show. It was because I was in the middle of this great area where people were walking. I sold out the entire show, which for for me at the time, I think means we made like 10 grand, which Mm -hmm. was more money than I had ever seen in my life. The, the, to his credit, the Lombardis didn't even ask for a cent. They said, you keep it. I'm like, Aww. awesome. Super nice, right? Yeah. But I went back the next couple days or the week after to, to tear everything down and, and go home and bring my stuff or whatever and help clean up. And I said, hey, so when are we doing this again? This was great. And, and next time you have to take a cut because if not, what's the incentive? And, and, and they had even bought more pieces. So they were like – and his brother and his family was – so – they were into it. People were into it. Success all around. I'm like, this is it. We did it. We're going to be gallery artists. And uh, I said, so when are we doing it again? And the response I got was, well, we'll see. I'm like, we'll see. I said, let's plan something six months, whatever. I don't even know what the right time frame is, but whatever, six months, four, eight, whatever you want, let's do it. Talk to my assistant and we'll see if anything makes sense in the next couple of years. We'll do. And, I, and I'm like, what? And so I said, screw this, man. I I was considering doing a local comic con in Miami up until that point. And I thought it seemed like at the time, because of my background in the the fine art world, that it would be quote unquote beneath me to do that. I didn't feel like that, but there was a voice in my head. You just had a solo show in a big gallery in Miami, big art city. Don't do this. It's going to look bad. But I said, fuck it. Let's have fun. And I love, and I, we did it. A buddy of mine did it with me, Brian Reedy, another great printmaker. And uh, and uh, we went and we we made a bunch of artwork for a whole year. Another art teacher, by the way, too, Brian Reedy. So we were both art teachers side by side in the same school, having fun making artwork, both gallery artists, him even longer than I was. And we both said, let's, let's do a convention. Let's have fun. Let's get a table. And we made just all the artwork we'd ever want to make as a kid, like Godzilla stuff, Star Wars stuff, blah, 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 all block prints. I did. I was also doing paintings. I was also doing some digital art because I didn't know what was going to sell. I tried a little bit of everything and we did the show and it went super well. We spent three days. We each made like, I think a couple of grand a piece, which is great. Although when you take out what we invested, who knows if it was really good. (laughs) Point is, People loved it. People discovered it. It was like a real transaction. It was no pretenses. And they were, and we were also selling things much cheaper than they would be in a gallery, but it was the price dictated by the market. Wow, what a concept. And so <laughs> I said, oh shit, here's a marketplace that is consistently here. They have these shows at least once, if not twice a year in Miami, four hours away in Orlando. They have another huge one every year. And then a couple of months before that one, they have one in Tampa. So every year I could potentially do four of these. And if I get really smart on my teacher's salary, I could make an extra four to six grand a year if I do well like this and just pocket change. And uh, which would 
which was great because I took all the money I would make and I would invest it back into doing more. And then little by little, it became a thing where I, I realized paintings aren't as popular as the block prints because the block prints, because the paintings I could sell one and then prints of the painting, whereas the block prints, and be, this is another reason I stuck with printmaking, because of the nature of the medium, I could sell multiples of a handmade item at a much larger size and compete in prices with people who are making digital posters, digital art prints, and not handmade items. Still nice stuff, but not handmade. So my angle in the business place was handmade stuff, huge, on a unique aesthetic, super affordable. And you like, like you said, you don't have to necessarily be an art collector, but you got a nice freaking piece on your wall now. And and every time I would sell something to someone, that was an opportunity to explain the process. And they never even knew what printmaking was. I would bring the blocks. I would bring the tools to explain it all. And it, it, over time, what was missing from my education, I had to learn it by doing this, that if mm. I'm going to be able to continue to do this, invest in art materials, which at the time felt like a luxury when I was newly married, teaching salary, economic crisis, et cetera, this was a way to do it. And I would check in with my friends from the university and I said, guys, you should all be fucking doing this shit. Like, <laughs> go do your gallery yeah. shit, do whatever you want to do. But I think you'll make some money for your weird materials. You got to buy a new Dremel tool. You got to buy an airbrush. Here you go. Go and do this. Everybody was too cool for school. And I said, fuck it. I'll do it myself. And it, and little by little, eight. I did that for eight years, getting bigger, more successful, bigger, more successful, making more money, spending less money to make more money. And I learned how to be a business by accident. Mm, mm-hmm. And finally, in 2019, 2018, 2019, I incorporated myself because I was making enough money that it was going to be sketchy if I didn't report it. And and ju- and I had the year of my life in 2019. I I took did my first show, actually, in the end of 2018, my first show in California, first show out of Florida. I do one show out of Florida. It was called Designer Con in Anaheim, where it's it's a pop culture show, but with a heavy influence on the artistic side of it and a lot of wild stuff. I mean, you have guys out there like Ron English and Shepard Ferry and all those guys will go to those shows doing art toys and all this. And uh, and uh, I got the worst booth spot all the way in the back of the convention hall. And uh, I almost didn't do the show. I was so scared to pack up prints and ship them across the country. And a buddy of mine named Brian Ewing, another great artist, told me, don't be a wuss. If you don't get out of Florida, no one's ever going to see your work. And I had a fear of guilt and shame. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I signed up for the waiting list because it was already all booked. And they chose me. And i like, crap, I have a month to get ready. So I go set up. And I tell you, Miranda, everything changed after that point. I got noticed by Sideshow Collectibles, which is the single biggest like distributor of like pop art, pop culture art. They they do Marvel and Star Wars and Batman, all the ton high end, like thousand dollar pieces. They started carrying my prints, got me a license deal with Marvel. Then I met Brian Flynn over at Super Seven, which is a really cool toy merch apparel company. They released a T-shirt with my design. Then I met a representative from a non-profit organization named his name was Renee, and the the foundation was called the Kevin Workman Foundation. And what they did was every year they would sponsor one artist, all expenses to Comic Con San Diego, which if anything about it is like mecca, it's huge, mm-hmm. and they paid for everything for me. I got chosen out of a pool of artists. Thank God. They flew us out there, get hotel, the booth. You can't even buy the booth. If you try, it's like a five-year waiting list. And at that event, everything changed. That's where I met David Alpert, the guy who owns or is the CEO of Skybound Entertainment, where I currently work. And over time, we figured out a deal. And it's crazy, but I am a salaried artist. I love that. Salaried artist. Now, a salaried artist working on his own artwork. It's so crazy. I didn't think it would work out or last because it's never, I've never seen it done before. It's only happens in other interest in industries, excuse me, like, like the music industry, mm-hmm. a label yeah. going back to that. But yeah, so they basically hired me as an artist in residence and they are developing attack Peter as a brand with me together now, which is amazing. So whew, long-winded way to say 
all everything that I thought I was supposed to do didn't work the way it was supposed to work, but it forced me to look at things differently. And that's how I'm able to do what I'm doing now. Having is having worked in the fine arts, the commercial fine arts for about 10 years in big old galleries with decades of history in opposing buildings in downtowns of cities is for the last 10 years and probably before there's been this dialogue going on there that's all of this tech money, all these young kids with all of this money, none of them come in here. None of them buy. Like, why don't they support the arts? Why don't they do this? You hear it a lot in Seattle because Seattle has so much tech money, obviously, where people would just be sitting there saying like, why don't you come in and give me your money? And (laughs) the, the tech people knew that that dialogue was going on, I think, to a certain extent. But what people who are often younger and have the disposable income to be patrons, they are looking more towards the pop culture side of art and the pop art. And they'll spend, I don't know, $12,000 on a perfect lightsaber replica Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the fine art world really has a bit of a resentment towards that, that sense of we've been sitting here telling you how important we are for a very long time. How come you don't believe us? (laughs) Right. And it's funny because I, since again, since I didn't grow up in the fine art world until I got to college, I didn't have any immediate reverence for it. And so Mm. I've always felt, again, like an outsider among outsiders. I always came from a very practical mentality of like, and, and, and by the way, I, I love Mark Rothko to mm. death, for example. Oh, my God, me too. I, think, I cry I, in front of Rothko's. It's like being in a cathedral it. for yes. me. I, yeah. I think it's a hard sell for the average person, right? But I love Mark Rothko. So I appreciate uh, getting out there and being fully abstract and all this. But why should anybody care about anything besides what they naturally care about? And mm. if – so, it, 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 and, and yes, I totally get what you're saying because I said, I felt it all the time. And to me, I'm like, okay, I think for a lot of people, once you're in the fine art world, you forget what it took for you to get to a point where you could appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the people consuming fine art are people who don't have those prerequisites. They might dig it, but you're going to have a heart and, and, what what is the value of fine art? Why is it what it costs sometimes? It's never properly answered. So a lot of it is a false industry created by people. I always feel bad for the artist, to be honest with you, because I feel like the artists are just trying to find a way through, but there's all these intermediaries in between. They're they're lunatics, frankly. And so over time, that the novelty of these eccentric people who spoke above the proletariat it's wearing off it's not Mm. fun it's not funny it's not interesting it's not quirky it's become old-fashioned to be into like brancusi and 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 so it's like the culture is shifting and it's the it is frankly the history of all art summed up and repeated all over again because if anybody studies art history i know this all the cycle that happens repeatedly is a group of people come up, they make something really forward thinking and different and, and impressive, and they feel like they've reached the, 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 the peak of the mountain, and they talk to the next generation and go, if you're lucky and you work hard, you can be where we are. So, And the next generation goes, fuck you. I don't <laughs> want to be that. And so they completely rebel against the form, the aesthetic, the, the, the sentiment behind a lot of what came before and do something completely different. And then they do the same thing. They get to the new top of the mountain. They tell the next generation, Hey, look, lucky for you. We fought against the the generation before. So now you're allowed to do what we do. And then that generation goes, well, fuck you. And we get, we eventually get to the Dada movement. And then what else is there to rebel against? It's (laughs) like you get to a point where it's all just self-indulgent and, and look, you get to a point where now, we want the comfortable armchair because the fucking world is falling apart around us and we want to feel good again. And I think it's a, it's a push and pull. Like when things are good, art being out super out there and challenging will be in demand again. And then Mm. when things are difficult, we want 
something to comfort us. And it's comic books came to be super popular during the world wars and people wanted hope and, and something to aspire to. And right now I think people want to feel like they're a part of something. Yeah. And when I was in school, the feeling was always, you're not probably going to be into this. So unfortunately you're not going to be part of this. And that is the, to me, as somebody who doesn't want to go back working retail again, who doesn't want to go work at a Sears call center again. I want to work making stuff and at least inspiring other people to know that the great feelings I get from making stuff, you can have too. And it doesn't have to be so clear cut. You don't have to know where you're going. You just have to try you know, and, and enjoy the process of creating and making. And sometimes it's people DM me and they go, Hey, I want to get my first block linoleum to carve. Cause it looks so fun. And I'm like, yeah, here's a speedball beginner set, get block print magic. It's by, uh, Oh my God, her name escapes me now, but the diggingest girl on Instagram, go get this beginner set, get this book and go to town and have fun. And that is what makers should try to do. Because if you do that to answer your question about the tech billionaires investing, you reshape the culture to value making and creating and the arts. And look, you're going to have the people who want to make giant monsters and weird stuff like me. And you're going to have the people who want to paint the room turquoise and sit and spin in it. And it's all good. <laughs> we can all go to the part after party together if the culture shifts to prioritize that. The, we don't prioritize art for art's sake anymore. We prioritize art as a vehicle to give us nostalgia now to get, because shit sucks. Now we can remember when it was good. We, we prioritize art that gives us a feeling of hope and aspiration, which is why all the movies that people want to see are fucking superhero movies. Yeah. There's a reason for that. We're not all in some mass. I mean, maybe we are all in some mass psychosis, but it's more like mass trauma coping. Like, and so Instead of like looking around and going, well, why not me? Mm. Either do what you want to do and don't give a shit about other people's reaction to it. More power to you. Maybe that's the angle, right? Or decide if you decide that you need to make a living doing this, do what I did for 13 years. I taught every day. All, all year long from kindergarten all the way to University of Miami grad students. But in order to have time to be an artist that I was working on my portfolio, my career, I would wake up at 4.30 every morning, get to, get to work by 5.30 a.m. and work for two hours before the first student showed up. And that way, by the time I had to give myself over to this job that I enjoy, but it wasn't my passion, I was ready. I put in two uninterrupted hours of working on my work. And sometimes I was finishing a piece that I was proud of. Sometimes it was sketching aimlessly in a book and not getting the idea I want. Sometimes it was reading an article or watching some how-to videos or looking up different pieces of art supplies I needed. The point is I had two hours to myself every day because I sacrificed my sleep and I would be able to balance my life until over time, the amount of time I shifted, I, I dedicated to myself and to teaching shifted until, as I could defend doing it. Mm-hmm. I was making it, eventually I was making more money in my art than teaching over time. And so I could justify, hey, I'm sorry we have a standardized testing day this week, but I need the day off. Or I'm sorry we have open house this week, I need the day off because I have a show in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. And over time it became that everything shifted. So I wasn't looking, I wasn't expecting anybody to give a shit. I was trying to look at it as a game or a challenge. And how could I be me, do the work I want to do and get people to give a shit? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 And I think talking about an art historical perspective, it all gets flattened over time. And I thinking about how Mozart was Justin Bieber. He was pop music. Salieri wrote the highbrow stuff. But now who gets played more on the radio station? We look to culture, whether it's music or visual culture, as a way to connect, as a way to feel, and as a way to tell ourselves something about other people. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, this idea that one is sort of intrinsically more valuable or tells you more about a culture than another. 
it's just all information. 100%, yeah. 100%. And, and it's like, as you're talking about flattening, I'm thinking it's so flat in the sense that there are no more superstars in reality. Like there's no more like agreed upon apexes of a medium anymore. Like mm. there's not, there's mm-hmm. not. Everything is these sub communities, these smaller communities. I, I'm in a community on Facebook, by the way, I, I know Facebook is a thing that people like to poop <laughs> on. I don't use the the main Facebook. I don't want to see anybody's sandwich. I blocked everybody. I blocked my mom. <laughs> I blocked everybody. But I use Facebook groups and I have a very curated experience in social in social media that way. I am in multiple, multiple Godzilla toy collector groups. <laughs> that much demand for variety among them. So my point is you could be the king of your own little fiefdom because all the interests of that, they, we, we, we find each other and every everything is splintered in that way. So there's no point of creating a hierarchy in any regard anymore because the culture's almost moved past the, the, mm. that notion entirely. Who's yeah, the, the biggest rock band on the planet? Like who is the biggest pop artist on the planet that everybody from 13 to 50 can agree on? It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing that came about was like the Beatles. You know, yeah, well, and, exactly. I mean, and that's that's recent, before the internet, right? That's yeah, before most, you can find it. Yeah, exactly. the what last time it was a big, big, big band, I think was like U2 or Coldplay or something yeah. like that. Like, that was it, right? So, we don't where that, that culture doesn't exist anymore, not for music, not for art, not for anything. You could be huge to a thousand people and have a career that lasts. Mm. Yeah, we had Phil Sanders on, gosh, maybe even like a year ago. He he wrote a book called Prince and Their Makers, mm. and he hosts a book club for people interested in printmaking. And when he, he was on, he was talking about, you don't want a wide audience. You want the right audience. Yes. You want the people who want what you're doing. Yes. And something that genuinely comes from you and your unique interest and, ex- and experience and what you bring to it, that's what makes people interested in what you're bringing to the table. The The internet has changed everything. It is It is an incredibly democratizing medium and an incredibly destructive medium and an incredibly dangerous one and an incredibly powerful one. But like like all things, it doesn't have an inherent good or bad, but one of the effects that it has had is that people who are interested in what you do can find you and follow you and support you. And that would have been kind of inconceivable pre Instagram, pre Facebook groups, pre, Oh my gosh, I saw this guy's work at Comic-Con San Diego, I can take a photo of it and text right. it to my boss because he's looking for an artist to collaborate with right, right yeah. now. In fact, a gallery is actually kind of like a, not a great tool because it's only guaranteeing, it actually guarantees you nothing, but it's only offering to get a small percentage of a small community to be aware for, of you in that moment, unless they have broad reach. Otherwise the, the pure function of the gallery does not, mean what it used to mean. Well, you have a platform if you look for it. I think it's important for artists to understand social media super well. And the best people to follow and learn that from are not other artists. They're mm. people. So it's important to go outside of that. I think it's important to be somebody who is aware of a marketplace. Like you're creating something with the intention of selling it. Okay, where? Like where are you going to sell it? Pick the place. Is there because you're not going to have any draw on your own at the beginning? So where are you going to take this? Is there a great like craft market in your city that that works? Great. If not, you're probably going to need something online. Where online is? Where do people gather online? Around what concept? There are printmaking forums, but a lot of those are other artists. So mm-hmm. it's like so it's like important to think about those things. I listen to strategists like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, when I was fi- figuring myself out. And so many concepts that I heard from him were things that I already thought, but thought that wouldn't fit with what I'm doing. And it changed everything, like paying attention. Like we're printmakers, right? You should go on Instagram, for example, if you're struggling with your reach and type in printmaking as a hashtag. And what are the top nine results? Those top nine results, you should start paying attention to who those people are, who those accounts are, and engaging in the comment section as if you were at a gallery where you saw this piece. 
And if you were at a gallery as an artist wanting to meet someone, you would talk to other people, you would make some valid contributions in the conversation. And maybe over the time when you find the right in, you put in your own stuff or you can talk. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. And so those are the things that they, I didn't learn in school or I didn't understand what was important. But luckily, with all that, I'm at a point now where not only is printmaking kind of like a cool thing in this pop culture world that that I'm that I'm in, but now I've I've been able to because you mentioned Godzilla earlier, I got so much attention doing Godzilla posters that I started working on my own world of monsters and characters, and and over time I've been creating a lot of this concept art on my YouTube channel with the crowd. I, I usually stream about every two weeks, although now we're kind of like on a unofficial break preparing for a Kickstarter in July. And so I've developed all these concepts with the crowd, with the audience live worked on stuff with their feedback. And I'm about to launch a Kickstarter for a book that showcases. That's basically like a peek into this alien planet where all these species and creatures and civilizations live, etc. And it's almost not even about the block print at this point. It's just that people have expressed that they enjoy the medium and the aesthetic. So now I get to take another turn. I don't just want to be the printmaking guy in this world. There's too many amazing printmakers. And as soon as this gets more notoriety, it already has, more people are going to do printmaking in pop culture because it's a great business model. And so I can't rest on my laurels. Now I'm shifting the whole thing into a, a, a style, a recognizable style, a recognizable drawing style really within printmaking that I can now adapt and, and create my own intellectual property that I can invent. Hopefully if it does well. We're already, we're working on action figures based on printmaking. I don't know if you may have seen the Godzilla figure I designed. It's the first time I've ever seen it. It's an, it's a statue slash, vinyl figure of Godzilla done in the style of my linoleum block printmaking. It's crazy. It has little tick marks and carve marks on it. It's a black and white image. I did a Daruma doll at Skybound. It's like a statue of a Daruma. It's got carve marks and patterns and it looks like a block print. And so now it's like taking this aesthetic into other mediums and figuring out a way to kind of like spread that idea around it. And who knows? I don't know where it's going to go. I had just as much idea as where I'm going now as what I did when I started mm-hmm. this 20 years ago or so. Speaking of Godzilla, I wanted yeah. to ask you about the kind of partnerships that you've done like yeah. with the National Film Archive that crazy? In, and the Museum of Modern Art in Kyoto. I just love this narrative. Like you're this kid who's loving this pop culture in Miami yeah. and now- some odd years later, you've got the art institutions of Japan looking something? to Peter and saying like, hey, let's do something yeah. together. So would you maybe speak to kind of how that came about and yes. and what that looked like for you? I, I really have to, I'll give the majority of the credit to the folks at Mondo. If, you, if you're listening to this and you don't know Mondo, they are most well known for curating alternative movie posters. And so basically all, all your favorite films from movie history, they get the license to recreate movie posters with different artists and different art styles. So, I mean, you see some of the most incredible stuff because I think the people making them are so grateful for the opportunity to do it. But they, over time, have become such a name that you do a poster with them one time and it puts you in another stratosphere. Mm. And because I saw, I met them in 2019 and and I just wanted to work officially on Godzilla posters because Godzilla posters, when I worked on them unofficially, were my biggest selling print. And I was selling so many of them. I'm like, well, I'm either going to get a cease and desist or a W2 <laughs> one of these days. And so I was always like behind the scenes asking because now I had worked on a couple licensed projects. Like, But I, I was always behind the scenes. And the way this works, for those who don't know, like – Oh, you pay for a company usually has the budget to pay for a license to produce goods with copyrighted IP and all that kind of stuff. So Godzilla sells the rights to Mondo for a certain amount of time to make a certain type of good. And then Mondo hires 
artists or designers to create those goods for them. So that's in a nutshell how this usually works with different companies. And the rates are always different and the the platform is always different in t- terms of how big and, and how much it gets around. But Mondo's huge. And so anyway, so I, I was asking everybody I met because everybody came up to me at Comic-Con in San Diego and I told you how I got there and they were just glad handing. And some of them were sincere, but everybody was like, hey, we'd love to work with you on this. Here's my business card. Love to work with you on this business card. And any after a while, I was so bombarded with it. I just started saying, do you have the Toho license? You have the Toho <laughs> license because at that point I had learned that the license to produce Godzilla and and Toho properties was very difficult to come by. They didn't just give it out to anybody, and if you found someone that had it, they probably weren't going to hire you anyway because they had their own ideas, right? So I was just asking, and I would laugh with my wife Gabby about it, who's like my right hand man when it comes to all this kind of stuff. And I said, what I'm going to do, Gabby, I'm just going to ask everybody if they have the license and see what happens. Either I'm going to get like side-eyed or I'm going to get something good out of this. So so I started asking. And finally, when I met the the folks at Mondo, specifically a guy named Rob Jones, great guy, he goes, we have the Toho license. Like, <laughs> it was like a movie. So they love my work. I love them. And and I we, we started talking and I designed three poster designs and God, if you see my sketches, I'll send them to you in case you have a way to share visuals. But yeah. they're just atrocious, atrocious digital sketches that I did on the plane on the way home from Comic-Con. I was so excited. And I submitted them thinking that only Mondo was going to see them, give me feedback, and then we could polish them up for Toho. And nope, they sent them right to Toho, these awful little sketches. But Toho, based on my other work prior, approved it. God bless them. <laughs> and... They, the posters came out, they sold in record speed. And since then, it's just been like a great, great relationship where I'll be honest, I'm a little audacious. I ask for things, which is mm. kind of a faux pas, I've been told, but what are you going to do? And so I don't have any shame. I'm, I'm not, I'm re- I respect, but I'm not like, I don't put anybody on a pedestal. And I feel like I'm, br- I'm working my ass off. I'm not being a brat. I'm saying, Hey, I'm going to work my ass off. I've sold out some stuff for you before. Let's do it again. Let's go a little harder. Let's go a little bigger. Let's make some more money on this. Right. And, and, and for me, it's not really about money. I just want to try to do everything. Like I'll be satisfied when I get to contribute something that gets put into a film that looks like a block print or something. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) and so, so I asked them and, and like, can we do some more? They like, let's do more. We did more. They sold out. I said, it would be great. I'm going to go online since these posters just sold out and thank everybody on Instagram in case anybody there bought one. I'm going to thank them because it was so crazy. My my social media presence skyrocketed after that. It was crazy. So I went online, started talking. The Mondo guys showed up in the chat and I said to the crowd watching, I'm like, hey guys, there's so-and-so from Mondo. Tell them that you like the posters. Tell them you like it. Tell them you'd love to see it. Get this as a toy or as a statue. And they're all like, we would love to see it in the comments. And then the Mondo guys are watching that. And I'm hoping they're getting the tongue in cheek nature and the, and the humorous brattiness of that. And they reached out to me after like, let's do it. Let's do a statue. And so we started working on it. That thing came out, sold out like crazy. And finally Mondo got a partnership. This is what you had originally asked for, or, or like a relationship established through Toho. I'm sure with the National Film Archive in Japan, with the Museum of Modern Art in Kyoto, to have a Mondo art show. Mm, and yeah. so they had a retrospective of X amount of years of a lot of these posters that aren't, they don't usually ship overseas, Mondo. So to get them in Japan is very difficult, and the eBay prices are through the roof. So it was a big draw. You could see all, and it's because of the licenses. They don't have the license to sell always overseas. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So they have these, this exposition and they have one of my prints in there. It's Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. But because I was the only print that was, or poster that was made using printmaking, I I said to them, you guys, we should probably shoot a little video or something because my upbringing in the galleries, you would see videos alongside artwork to explain process. So I go, why don't we? So thank the galleries for that. We'll give them a a kudo point here. We've tracked them so much. (laughs) Uh, So I say, let's do a little video. So I make a little video on my iPhone and I show the whole process. And so in... In the, the the museum and in the uh, National Film Archive, there's my dumb face on a big flat screen TV next to the print explaining the whole thing with Japanese subtitles. So freaking cool. And even better than that, 
I had made these small little block prints that I would use to embellish my artist proofs of the print editions to sell to my own audience. And they loved them so much. They go, why don't we make a little letterpress set? And they made this exclusive letterpress set that if you see the the letterpress set, the packaging, it is, and you just think of me as this loser nerd growing up in Miami, <laughs> not understanding the art world, not even the best guy in his class most of the time, right? And it, it says... It says, Attack Peter, Mondo, Toho, National Film Archive of Japan, MoMA, Kyoto. All those are on it. All those labels are on the same. And it blows my mind because I just know my imposter syndrome is through the roof. Mm-hmm. I always feel like I don't belong in the, and we're about like the rug is about to get pulled out from under me at any moment. So I'm just going to try something crazier just in case. And, uh, and here we are, and this is some fucking crazy shit I would never have expected to have happen. And I'm, I, it, it's not lost on me. I'm so grateful because I know how exclusive all that stuff is. I mean, I mean, the, like just saying MoMA in college was like, <laughs> it's like, it's, like yeah. it's a thing. I get it. I get the prestige of all this. It's a, it's a group show. It's not like it's an Attack Peter solo show, but the fact that I was even invited. The fact that it's there, the fact that my big dumb face is on TV, the fact that they created a, a letterpress set for the gift card shop. I couldn't plan any of this. And if I had tried to plan it, it would have failed. The only thing I ever do is when I'm here in my studio working on my stuff, I'm trying to impress that 11-year-old version of mm. me It would have potentially seen some of this stuff and gone that stuff is cool looks a little weird i bet i could draw that because i think my stuff looks like a kid could draw it (laughs) i'm not even saying that as an insult to me but it has this whimsy to it that i think a kid could look at it and try it because big Mm -hmm. bold shapes simple patterns and things like that and so i would think that as an 11 year old version of me i would look at my work and go "Ooh, i want to go home and draw right now and try to make some weird shit and 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 so I'm, I'm, that's all I ever think of. And if I lose sight of that, the work is not as good. And when I focus on that, all these good things happen. And, I uh, love that. Yeah. So I think that's the secret sauce for me. Like, could this be a cool toy or could this be a cool book of monsters that would make a kid want to draw? I think that's the secret sauce. I love that. I feel like that's the perfect place to start to wrap up is that idea of little little Peter looking yeah. at what big Peter's doing now. And, and I'm sure he'd be delighted. Like, Perfect. You better cut me off. Cause as you can see, I don't stop. <laughs> stop. I always, we always aim to record for like about 60 minutes is sort of yeah. always, honestly, I always feel like I could talk with most of my guests for much longer and be happy, sure. but both my husband and I do full-time jobs. And so oh, yeah. it's like, the amount of hours we have for editing. It's like, like Tim at one point was like, you need to stop sending me these two hour long conversations. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, it's going to kill me. But no, I think that's, that's really amazing. And yeah. like I said, like a lovely place to, to, to wrap up and. Perfect. I let you out of the closet for Christ's sake. I know. And it's so people hot who, in Santa Fe right oh now. My God, like, People boy. who are listening to this, if you don't know, Poor Miranda is literally <laughs> so. Please, whatever means of supporting this podcast, double down, triple down. Big tip, big big tip, right? Yeah, we've got yeah. it. We have a Patreon. Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't be don't be uh, stingy out there. Throw everything, sell something, and and give the money to her and and this and this great podcast because I'm so grateful you had me on here. Oh, thank you. Where yeah. can people find you, Peter? Where can they see your YouTube and your artwork oh. and your projects? Okay. Luckily enough, nobody had the name Attack Peter, so I got that on pretty much everything. Except, you want to want to laugh? I had attackpeter.com forever. I let it lapse for one day to transfer over the ownership to the company. And in that one day, I'm pretty sure the URL company snagged mm, it up. Yeah. And now it's $100 if you want to get attackpeter.com. <laughs> don't go to attackpeter.com is what I'm trying to tell you. But add Attack Peter on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, skybound.com slash attack Peter. I am home at Skybound Entertainment, which if you don't know, is the company started by Robert Kirkman and David Alpert. Robert Kirkman created The Walking Dead. So oh, it's like cool. You just brand. Yeah. And uh, they've been so gracious to me. We're about, this is the big one. Cut this out and put it right in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. <laughs> We're about to launch a Kickstarter in July, July 19th. 
and it is for the natural progression of any artist who works in print. You want to collect all the work. You want to put it in a big volume, right? But instead of just doing that, instead of putting all this work that you can flip through, we're writing a story. We're building a world. We're creating some intrigue, some drama, and all these prints that have been working on over the last couple of years are all going to tie together, plus stuff you've never seen before. And hopefully, this is like your issue one, your your ground floor opportunity to make to get something that you can sell on eBay later for a lot more, hopefully. So if you're a big fan of printmaking, check me out. I think I think I'm doing you guys proud, hopefully. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how long will that Kickstarter run for? Do you we have- haven't finalized it, but I think it's gonna be like three weeks. Okay. Like not too long, not, not too, too short. long. Yeah. A sweet spot. We also have uh, there's two big action figure statue things that are pop off the page block prints in 3d and and if you haven't seen the godzilla one just wait till you see these these are so awesome it's the spirit it's the energy that i think we all start off with i'm trying to encapsulate it into these art objects for everybody so i hope you guys will enjoy it and check out check me out on instagram and if you heard me here let me know in a comment or in a DM or something. I would love to know and and talk with you guys more because I'm trying to find more printmaking friends out there. So I would love to meet you all. <laughs> well, good thing for you. That's yes. our specialty at Hello Print Friends. Ah, so yeah, please. It's been really fun to hear your story. And thank you so much for speaking so logically and and real and realistically about making it work out there because that's not the conversation that people have nearly enough so no, we're gonna fix all the problems miranda you and me don't worry about it we got it we got yeah, it through okay. printmaking <laughs> exactly. thank you so much i appreciate it if you like today's episode we have a patreon where you can help us keep the lights on here and get bonus content like shop talk shorts where our editor timothy pauschak digs deep on materials processes and techniques with past guests Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent ya. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week. My guest will be Alexander Medelvanich, also known as Leka. Leka is a Serbian printmaker who came up in the Belgrade punk rock scene before the fall of the wall. We talk about the creative and destructive forces of punk rock, how to give yourself some artistic R&R after a big project, and how we learned that Sid Vicious could really play the guitar after all. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.